Well, like I mentioned, I really appreciated that song uh, that the praise team just sang for us because I'm sure some of you have been wondering, why in the world are we studying the end of the book of John instead of the beginning of the book of John during Christmas season? I mean, what does Jesus have, what does Jesus rising from the dead particularly, which is what we're looking at this morning, have to do with a baby in a manger? Shouldn't we be saving this for Easter or something? Well, I guess what I'd say to that is that personally I don't see any problem at all with studying the resurrection during Christmas. And the reason for that, quite simply, if you're following on your notes there, is this. If not for Easter, we'd have no reason to celebrate Christmas. If not for Easter, we'd have no reason to celebrate Christmas. The song they sang is the whole story. Easter validates everything we believe about Jesus, including his birth, that he was Emmanuel, God with us, including what Jeff so powerfully talked about with us last week of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Someone has once said, I love this, the empty cross and empty tomb are God's receipts telling us that the debt has been paid. It's your receipt. It's done. Hold on to that. It proves that that baby we sing about, that miracle baby, the humble baby that came, really is God with us. It proves that all he accomplished on the cross when he cried out, it is finished. It really is finished. Listen, we wouldn't be here to worship a dead guy, I hope, would we? A lot of babies have been born in this world and we don't worship them. A lot of people were executed by means of the cross in the Roman world, and we don't even remember them. Why? Because none of them rose from the dead. None of them rose from the dead. So this morning, as we continue our series as a church called Encountering Christ, I've got to just remind you of the beautiful banners that are uh, continuing to develop here. As we continue this series, uh, we're going to be looking at a the privilege of looking at the risen one, the resurrected one. Truly, i got to tell you, this is one of the most wonderful passages in all of Scripture, and I don't just mean that because of what it's talking about, though obviously that's central. I mean, we're talking about the resurrection. It's important. But just as a person, I don't know if you like to read. I just like to read. I like to read good stories, good books. And just from that perspective, this is just one of the greatest stories, in my opinion, that has ever been written. It's got everything you'd want from a good story. It's got sadness and joy and triumph and mystery and wonder. I mean, who needs the Hunger Games or whatever book it is right now that's popular? When you've got this, right? Now, of course, I know, I'm not fooling myself here, that you're probably very familiar already with this story. You think you know it. And so it's a challenge for us this morning to think, how can I re-enter into this story? But that's been my prayer. Would you be willing to set aside everything you think you know about the resurrection story for just this morning and enter into it afresh together with me. That's partly why I didn't want to have message notes the same way we normally have them. I don't want to tell you what I think you should write down. I've been praying that the Spirit would reveal to you some new things, uh, some fresh things about the resurrection story of Jesus Christ. So there's plenty of blank space for you to use as we walk through this. Basically, here's all I'm going to do together this morning. We're just going to walk through this story I'm going to be pausing and making comments and so forth. And then at the end of it, I will come back and say, here are four things that kind of stood out to me as I looked specifically at the encounter Jesus had with Mary after his resurrection. So that's really all I'm hoping to accomplish with you this morning. But again, my prayer is, let's look at this with fresh eyes. I think if you're willing to do that, I think if you're willing to do that, 
you will experience some really cool things this morning. So take your Bibles, as I ask you to do every week, as Jeff and Brian do, that just take your Bibles, let's be first-handers. I can tell you, maybe more than any other Sunday, you're going to want to have your Bible open, because like I said, we're just walking through it. And if you're wondering, well, I don't have a Bible, that's okay, we have some red Bibles in the seat in front of you there, if you can locate one of those, and you can find uh, John chapter 19, starting in verse 38, which is where we're going to be starting together this morning, about four-fifths of the way back in those red Bibles. And again, just uh, if you don't have your own Bible, that's our gift to you. We want you to take that home, uh, but we're trying to be first-handers in God's Word every week. So John 19, verse 38 is where we're going to be starting together. Do you mind, uh, before we do that, though, if I would just pray? We look to you now, Lord. Help what is so familiar to become new. I pray very specifically that the power of the resurrection would be made personal today. We thank you that you are a God who is not dead, that you are alive and well. Jesus, you are sitting in victory at your Father's right hand even now. why we're here that's why we sing Emmanuel you became one of us and it's in that same resurrection power I pray that you would help us to see this text this morning for your glory for your name for your sake amen well to set the stage of the resurrection we have to pick up where we left off last week last week we were talking about Jesus on the cross and so we're actually going back into chapter 19 uh, starting in verse 38 Everybody ready? Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, let me pause here. Uh, this is Friday still, and the sun is about to set. And that's important here because uh, if you know anything about Jewish customs, what time did the Sabbath start for a Jew? Sunset on Friday. And so any Jew who wanted to follow the law had to be in their house with their family before the sun set. However, the law also states in Deuteronomy 21 that if somebody is executed... Their body must be buried on the very same day. And so we're dealing with this tension here. Jesus has died. Joseph, we're told, needs to act quickly. He's trying to get this burial done before the sun sets so he can get back to his house. Now we learn from Mark's gospel that Pilate is actually really surprised that Jesus is already dead. And so what does he do? He calls in a centurion, most likely the one who had stabbed Jesus in the side and saw the blood and water mixture pour out. He calls him in just to make sure, to confirm, is he actually dead? And the centurion is able to do that, and so Pilate gives Joseph his body. Now here's a question, who in the world is Joseph? I mean, we haven't seen him once in the Gospel of John yet. Where did this guy show up? Well, the reason we haven't seen him is explained in the rest of this verse. I love this. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. I could spend a whole morning on that. Secret disciple because of fear. Can you relate to Joseph? I can. I felt a lot like him, in fact, in high school. You know, there were a lot of unsecret disciples in my youth group who were my friends, and they were the ones that were ridiculed and laughed at and mocked, and I wondered if I became like that. How would I be treated? But I've learned, 
I learned in my life, maybe you've learned in your life as well, that God will always create moments along the way where he is going to ask us to step out. And if we are unwilling, then maybe we were not a disciple after all. That moment came for me my junior year in high school. I had to decide, what is it I'm going to stand for in my life? How about you? Have you stepped out? Have you decided I'm no longer a secret disciple? I am a disciple of Jesus. Can you say these words that Paul wrote in Romans 1.16? Let's read them out loud together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. By the way, just to give any of you secret disciples out here some hope, notice who it is who is willing to step up during this hour and finally say they're a follower of Jesus. It's Joseph. Where are all the super disciples? Where's Peter? Where's John? They're the ones hiding, aren't they? That gives me some hope. Even secret disciples like me will have our moment to step out. Now look at this surprise in verse 39. I love this. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Looky, looky. The man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. I know it was a long time ago, but do you remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3. I mentioned that he was perhaps the most religious man in all of Israel, but he was confused what Jesus meant when Jesus told him, you have to be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God. You see, Nicodemus had grown up believing it was what I do. It was based on what I did that pleased God. That's how I entered the kingdom of God. I earned his love. I earned his favor. And Jesus sets his world upside down. No, that's not how the kingdom works. Well, something has changed for him, hasn't it? Notice the detail John gives us. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. That is the kind of quantity and quality you would have used for a king's burial. And that's exactly the point. To this one he once called good teacher. He now anoints his body as king. That's awesome, isn't it? Something happens when we encounter Christ. Verse 40. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. What's all that myrrh and aloe for that Nicodemus brought? Well, it was to wrap Jesus' body for the preparation of burial. Chuck Swindoll describes what this would have looked like for these two men. He said this, After pulling his arms out of the V position, so basically they're taking him straight from the cross. I can't demonstrate the V position for you. (laughs) But taking his arms out of the V position, they would have washed his body and anointed it with a mixture of spiced resin. That's the aloe and the myrrh brought by Nicodemus. Then they would have wrapped him in a single linen cloth. Then they would tie a separate cloth under his chin over his head to keep his mouth closed until rigor mortis set in. Then they would place his body in a burial cave carved from a limestone hill. Well, as I mentioned, the hour was getting late, and so Nicodemus and Joseph have to kind of rush this thing. That's why, if you've read other gospel accounts, the women who were with Jesus all the way to the end of his crucifixion, the faithful women... Show up on Sunday morning, the very first hour they can show up after Sabbath because they want to finish the job. 
that Joseph and Nicodemus have started, right? They want to anoint his body for burial. Verse 41. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. Pause. I don't know if that's just by chance, but can I ask a question? Where did the fall of the human race take place? I don't think it's a mistake that the redemption of the human race also takes place in a garden. There was a garden. And in a garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Again, notice the details. He's making a point here. He wants us to see this is a new tomb. This means when the tomb is found empty on Sunday, it's not like they got the wrong tomb. They knew exactly what tomb it was. It's the new tomb. There would be no mistake about where the body was. According to Matthew 27, we learn that this tomb was actually Joseph's own tomb. He's giving it up for Jesus. Joseph was a wealthy man, most likely, and so even in his burial... Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Lori read those verses from Isaiah 53. In verse 9 it says, He was assigned a, gra- a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Fulfilling prophecy even in burial. Amazing. Now I, I don't know what you picture when you think about the place where Jesus' body was laid to rest. I actually had the chance to go uh, to Israel when I was in college. Uh, life-changing uh, for me. Uh, but you show up and it's basically this crazy church that they've built over the site where they think that Jesus may have been buried. So that doesn't give us the greatest picture of what it might have actually looked like. And so we were taken to some other places what would have been more realistic of what this looked like. And so I I have a couple of pictures for you. These are the kind of places. It would have been a cave that would have been enough for two people to walk through. You can see, though, it's only about four feet high. And then you get inside and there's ledges on either side in these caves, a number of ledges where you would place the body. (coughs) And then... Go back to the first one. After you place the body inside, you've done all the wrappings and other things, you would roll this stone. We call it a stone, but it's actually, that's what it would have been, like a disc. It's a great big disc that you would roll in front of the entrance so that grave robbers and wild animals could not get into the tomb. Also, let's just be honest, so the smell of decomposition would stay in. This disc, by the way, they weighed about a half a ton and would be rolled along a little groove. There's a little track in front of the the mouth of the cave there. So that's the kind of picture I want you to have with what's going on right now. Verse 42. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there again. Sabbath is coming quickly. They're doing this quickly. They have to get home and rest as the law commands. And we pick up our story in John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, what day is that? Sunday. Sunday. That's why we worship on Sunday, Resurrection Day. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now John only identifies Mary Magdalene here, but in verse 2 even, in John's account, she uses the word we. So it indicates that there were other women there as well. We heard Lori refer to it when she read that story. And from the other Gospels, we know that it at least includes Mary, the mother of James, and and Salmone. I don't know how to pronounce her name ever, but that's how I do it. Now, who is Mary Magdalene? In recent years, actually quite a bit has been written about Mary Magdalene. It's, it's interesting. There's a lot of confusion about who she was. Honestly, all we really know about Mary Magdalene is from Luke chapter 8, verse 2, where she is identified as one from whom Jesus had expelled seven demons. 
She had been tormented by seven demons, and Jesus cast them out of her body. So no wonder, at the earliest possible time she could, she is showing up at his tomb. Imagine the love she must have had for this one who had freed her from that torment. She wants to properly bury him now, so that's why she comes. However, they arrive and they see that the stone has been removed from the entrance. I don't know what your translation says. Mine says, had been removed. But really, the Greek suggests that there was a sudden act involving the exercise of force. In other words, it wasn't just rolled away like it normally would be. Something unnatural happened to the disc, to the stone in front of the cave. Verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Who's that? That's John. That's how John has been referring to himself throughout this gospel. By the way, that's a pretty good way for us to be able to refer to ourselves too. Is that how you think of you? I'm the one who Jesus loved. And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Grave robbers were common in those days, so she naturally jumps to the conclusion somebody must have stolen his body. Remember uh, years after uh, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln was uh, laid to rest that grave robbers actually stole his body? Did you ever know this? Grave robbers stole his body. They broke into the tomb and thieves held his body for ransom, throwing the entire nation into shock and dismay. I mean, I can't even imagine that kind of news in today's society, right? Twitter would just be blowing up. The crisis finally ended, though, when they paid the ransom and the body was recovered and buried again, this time, though, under tons of concrete. Where? Right here in our city. The shock that the nation felt, though, when the body of Lincoln was stolen, it's got to be a lot like how Mary felt at this moment. You know, I know we read this story and we know the rest of the story. We know the reason the tomb is empty. But put yourself in her shoes. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. This was not good news yet. This was terrible news. They hadn't even been able to finish the anointing of his body. They'd stolen the body of the one that meant so much to her. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You've got to love that. Great detail, right? John must have been a long-distance runner, and fullbacks like Peter are only good for about 50 yards. He, John, bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, verses 6 and 7, hugely important. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. John is taking... An excruciating amount of detail here to make sure we get a picture of what they saw when they looked into the tomb. What Peter and John see is that the clothes that had been wrapped around Jesus' body are still lying there as if undisturbed. As if whatever was in them had just vanished. John Stott uses this wonderful illustration when he says it was like a discarded chrysalis from which the butterfly has emerged. Specifically important, John notes, is the face cloth that was wrapped around Jesus' uh, head there. It had been what? What does it say? Folded up by itself. Now, I don't know if you know any grave robbers. I'm guessing you don't, but most of the grave robbers I know (laughs) don't neatly fold up 
clothes from the people they're stealing from. Something not ordinary is taking place here. And the whole point of this description is that the grave clothes didn't look as if they had been taken off. It looks like something had just kind of evaporated out of them. Verse 8, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Why did he believe? It's because of what he saw with the linens. It's because of what he saw with the linens. Now, one of the ongoing themes in the Gospel of John, maybe you've seen this, is this word see, saw. It's all over. He saw. In fact, in this little passage, in just these four out, three out of these four verses, John uses that three different times, but it means three different things. In verse 5, it says he looked in. He, he just looked in. In verse 6, used for Peter, I believe, it says he looked carefully. It's the same word, just used differently. He observed. There's something going on here. But then in verse 8, the word means to perceive with intelligent comprehension. He is beginning to understand. John is beginning to understand, though not entirely, which is why he includes verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Now listen, people say the disciples fabricated the story of Jesus rising from the dead, but they're just as surprised as anyone to find that the tomb is empty. Now we come to the encounter with Mary. This is the crux of our text this morning. Look at verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Now that word crying doesn't just mean a couple tears. It means she was wailing. She was weeping. We've been doing some of that together as a church this week, haven't we? I want to say there's nothing wrong with sincere sorrow. Jesus himself wept. God made us to shed tears. It's a good kind of therapy, but as we talked about at Thursday's service, if you happen to be here, the sorrow of a Christian is different from the sorrow of this world. We don't weep because we have no hope. 1 Peter 1.3 says, We have been born again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We don't weep because of a lack of faith but because we missed our loved ones. And like Jesus, when he wept, we know this is not as the world is supposed to be. Mary weeps. And I just want to tell you, she represents you. She represents you if you've ever experienced loss. She represents all of us. She weeps. She weeps. Verse 11, as she wept, she bent over and looked to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now, I don't know if any of you are Old Testament scholars here, but for you Old Testament scholars, what does that make you think of, that picture? Look at Exodus 25. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Cherubim are angels. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. There, above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Just as the two angels faced each other on the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant of the law, 
so now two angels sit at the head and feet of the new covenant, the ark of the new covenant, which was Jesus' body. Now risen, now victorious, it is an ark, an atonement of mercy and grace, no longer of the law. Verse 13, they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Now we can read that and think that's kind of harsh, like because when we say that today, we would go something like, woman, that's not the idea here. It's like, dear woman, dear woman, why are you crying? You see, the, from the perspective of heaven, nothing is more odd than tears at the empty tomb of Jesus. <coughs> they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it, that it was Jesus. A lot has been written about that. Why can't Mary recognize that it's Jesus? Is it because the way she's weeping, her vision is blurry? Is it because Jesus is disguising himself like he did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Uh, Some have argued it's because the idea of she looked back is simply a quick gaze. She just kind of glanced back and then she returned her focus to the object of her loss. She turned her gaze back to the tomb. I don't know what the reason is. But I don't blame Mary one bit for not recognizing Jesus. Can you imagine the thoughts that must have been going through her mind as she stayed in that lonely cemetery? Here laid the one who had rid me of the most tremendous torture of my life. He's gone. I'm sure she had to wonder, are are the demons going to come back? Is my life going to go back to the terrible, terrible thing that it was before I had met him? The least thing Mary expected was that Jesus had risen. And so often that's the case for me. In my sorrow, in my fear, in my worry, in my brokenness, I have my gaze fixed in the wrong place. I'm looking at the tomb when all along I just need to look behind me. There stands my Lord, who is always with me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. Jesus asked the same question the angels do, and then one of his own. Woman, he said, dear woman, why are you crying? Again, this is no reason to cry. Who is it you are looking for? This is great. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Mary's guess that he's the gardener is so wrong on one level, but it's so right on another. This is the beginning of the new creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he placed man and woman where? In a garden. And we messed it up. And so he sent the only one who could restore it. He sent the only one who could cultivate the garden that has been destroyed and to usher in a new spring. The thorns and the thistles of this garden have been done away with. Out has come shoots of life, of blossom. Now we come to what I think is one of the most dramatic moments in all of Scripture. It's right up there for me with Nathan's rebuke of David in 2 Samuel 12. You remember that one? Where David had committed adultery and he doesn't want to own up to it. And so Nathan probably trembling, shows up, tells him this story, and David gets all mad about this guy who was killing this sheep. 
And Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man. You're the man. And this one's right up there with me. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. That word Rabboni is a term of both affection, yes, but also of the highest regard. Today we might cry out something like, my master. All it took was her name. It's all he had to say. Mary immediately recognized that voice. How often had she heard that voice the last few years? Mary, she knew. She knew whose voice that was. It's like when you receive a phone call from a friend you haven't talked to for years, but as soon as you get them on the line, you're like, oh, I know who this is. This is the voice she had been waiting for. She rushes to him and most likely falls down at his feet, holds on to him, we're told, and begins to probably worship him. Verse 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. I don't know how you read that. Do you read that as like a rebuke? That's caused a lot of difficulty for people over the years. I can't tell you how much I read about that. Don't hold on to me. What does Jesus mean by that? Is he just being mean? Later in verse 27, he invites Thomas. We looked at this in Easter. He invites him to touch him, right? Touch my side. Touch my hands. Why is he telling her not to, better translation is, cling to me? Don't cling to me. Well, there's a number of explanations, but really, I don't think it's that complicated. Just read the rest of verse 17. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Holding on to him would have been a natural thing to do, right? It's what she probably wanted most, and she never wanted to let go again. But he has a job for her. We know from later, Mary's not upset by this. She doesn't see this as a rebuke. She gets to be the first person in human history to declare the gospel. Don't cling to me. There are others. There are others in a room not too far away, cowering in fear, who need to hear the good news. I have risen. Go. In many ways, I like how someone said, she becomes the apostle to the apostles. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that he had said these things to her. That is the essence of Christianity. A Christian is one who can say, I have seen the Lord. I don't just know about God. I know God. He has revealed himself to me. Pretty awesome story, huh? Has God shown you some new things to take away? I hope so. Hope you've been able to see this with fresh eyes, and I hope you're able to walk out of here with your own application. But like I said, I had uh, four things I would just want to mention specifically in this encounter with Mary that stood out to me this week. These are on your notes if you'd like to use your notes. Again, there's space underneath if you want to write something totally different or say, I disagree completely with this. <laughs> First thing I noticed is that the resurrection breaks down the barriers of this world. What did the resurrection accomplish? What did we learn in Mary's encounter that the resurrection accomplished? The resurrection breaks down the barriers of this world. It is very significant to me that the very first person Christ appears to is a woman. Not an apostle, not one of the greats of society or even of the church. He didn't appear to Nicodemus. He didn't appear to Peter first. 
he appears to a particular woman. Listen, if somebody in the first century had wanted to make up this story about a guy rising from the dead, they would never have dreamed in a million years during this time to give the star role to a woman, particularly this woman. And yet that is exactly what Christ chose to appear to. He appeared to the one in culture who was the most outcast, possessed by demons. And not only does he appear to her, he commissions her to be the first person ever to get to preach the gospel. What a comfort it should be to us. I mean, if you've ever had that thought, well, I'm not good enough for God. God doesn't want any part of me in his life. Cast it away. There are no barriers in God's kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul wrote it this way in Galatians 3.28. Let's read it out loud. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He came for everyone. He came for Nicodemus, the greats in the church. And he came for the least of these as well. Second thing I, help, I couldn't help but notice in this encounter is that the resurrection opens up a new relationship with God for us. Something has changed. The resurrection has opened up a new relationship with God for us. Jesus says one word, Mary. On hearing her name, suddenly Mary realizes this could be none other than Jesus. Imagine the love that must have flooded her heart when she heard her Savior saying her name. She knows his voice personally. It reminds me of Jesus' promise to us way back in John chapter 10, verse 27, when he gave us these words, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I know them, and they follow me. Do you know the shepherd's voice? Are you one of his sheep? If you don't understand what I'm talking about right now, you're going to miss the whole point of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and resurrection. The resurrection is personal in its implication. He did it for Mary, period. But he did it for you as well. He did it for Steve, Katya, and he calls my name. All he is waiting for is for us to turn our gaze away from the tomb, to acknowledge him and to run to him and declare, my master. Has he called your name? Do you hear his voice? Have you acknowledged him? I notice one other change in our relationship with God. This isn't so much with his encounter with Mary, but it's something he says to Mary. It's the way he refers to his disciples. Did you see that in verse 17? Before the resurrection, he has called them servants. He's called them even friends. But how does he refer to them in verse 17? Go to my brothers. That's awesome should be clear as we've been walking through John's gospel that something has happened. Something has happened in our relationship with God. I beg of you, throw away any picture you have of some distant God with a white beard up in heaven, unconcerned about your life, kind of like a puppeteer with your life. Throw that away. Because that is not the God of the resurrection. 
Our God is a personal God. And Jesus says we now can refer to him and know him the same way he did as our father. Because we are made brothers and sisters of Christ. We are adopted into his family. Throw it away. A new relationship is dawned between us and the Lord. The third thing I notice in this encounter is that the resurrection gives us hope even in a broken world. That's really what it's all about here. Jesus has gone before us in the last great adventure that we call death. We're afraid of it. We hate it. We don't like it. We mourn it. And yet, he has emerged triumphant on the other side of it. What does that mean for us? It means everything. It means everything. Christ's resurrection validates every promise he has made in the Bible. Every promise. It's the receipt. He says, hang on to this one, okay? This is semi-important. Don't lose it. Even the promise that says that one day he will wipe away every tear, he will create a new heaven and a new earth where he himself will personally dwell with his people. It's done. It's done. I wonder if he sometimes says to us, like he did to Mary, why are you crying? That's the message of Easter. Paul wrote so wonderfully about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking about the resurrection, what we have to look forward to. He wrote these words, Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us what? Victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're wasting our time. Go home and watch football. We have no reason for hope. But if Jesus could overcome the grave, then we have every reason to believe. Every reason to believe that one day he will claim his victory once and for all and we can stand there with him forever and ever. The resurrection validates the brokenness of this world will be made new. Fourth thing I noticed from this encounter is that we are called to share the resurrection with others. Don't miss that one. You can't miss that one. Rather than cling selfishly to Jesus, Mary is commissioned to go to the others with the glad news that he has risen. The resurrection wasn't just for Mary to experience. Yes, he wanted her to experience it, but it wasn't just for her. It's for all people. There were a group of men and women, like I mentioned, not too far away from her who need to hear this good news, right? And the same can be said about us. There's a group of men and women not too far from us. In Springfield, and Chatham, and Rochester, and Athens, or wherever you might live, that are just waiting to hear, I have seen the Lord, and you can too. He calls you by name. Tragically, over the centuries, the Christian community has shown a far greater interest in clinging to Jesus' feet. I count myself in this. Holding on to him for our own comfort and our own peace. All the while, there are many broken, needy hearts just in our neighborhood. 
in our workplaces. They're just waiting for somebody to share the good news. He is risen. Are you clinging or are you sharing? You know, we say at our church, one of our missions is to serve the world. We want to serve the world. We really do, but we cannot do that. We cannot do that together as a church until we are willing to show and tell the gospel. Until we are willing to say, along with Mary, I have seen the Lord. And I want to invite you to see him too. Let me close with this story. On Thursday, last Thursday, not this past one, but the one before, was when I had my surgery. And I got wheeled into all different kinds of hospital rooms because there was all those complications like I told you. And so every time I'd wake up from whatever anesthesia they had me under, I'd wake up and I'd be staring at the wall and at the other side of the wall was a cross with Jesus hanging on it. Probably know the hospital I'm talking about. You know, and that was a comforting reminder. That he, he's always with me. He was always with, with me. I just thought that was interesting. Wherever my bed was facing, there was the cross. And then I, I began to think about it and I honestly, I have nothing against Jesus on the cross there, that, that kind of crucifix. But I got to thinking, I like that one a lot better. Our God is not still dead on a cross. He is alive and well. The cross had no power over Jesus Christ. The grave had no power over Jesus Christ. Death had no power over Jesus Christ. Sin has no power over Jesus Christ. Do you know the resurrected Christ? I believe with all my heart that he is still calling people by name today. Whether your name is Mary, or John, or Pete. Is he calling you? Is he calling you? How are you going to respond? Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed. Father, we thank you for willingly sending your son for our behalf. Why did you do it? For God so loved the world. Jesus, we thank you for what you endured. But we're told it was for the joy that was set before you so that you could call people by name into an everlasting relationship, an eternal covenant Spirit, we are grateful that even now you are here and present. You are convicting people's hearts. You are opening eyes. I pray that you would do your work. And if there are any here this morning who have been looking in the tomb instead of looking at the one who called their name, would today be the day they turn around and receive you? I pray that you would do that as we sing now as we sing about the victory we have, that Christ is risen from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. In this season of giving gifts, let's never forget the greatest gift that's ever been given. I'm going to invite members of our prayer team to make their way down forward now. And I'm just going to lay it out there for you. Is he calling your name today? Have you heard the shepherd? You know whose voice it is? Are you ready to respond like Mary and run to him, acknowledge, fall at his feet and say, my master? Don't put it off. 
Don't wait another Sunday and another Sunday and another Sunday. The invitation to you is clear. And I'm just going to ask, for those of you who have already made that decision, I know that a lot of people want to ask and tell me they're praying for me and so forth, but we're going to be down front specifically this morning for anybody who wants to respond to the invitation Jesus Christ always offers. For the rest of you, I just thank you for the grace you've been showing me this morning and every other time. And I just want to pray that as you go into this Christmas season, as you continue to walk into it, celebrate Christmas remembering what's to come, the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look forward to that, friends, and go enjoy. God bless you. You're dismissed.